Welcome to the Going Banana Show, Eugene Chaplin, son of uh, the great Charlie Chaplin. Uh, how are you? Fine, fine. These strange days. These are really strange days. How's how's life in Switzerland? Like it's the same as everywhere else, you know. Um, uh, we've been on semi-lockdown now, but uh, the kids still go to school and life continues. And how's uh, Chaplin's World, the museum? Look, it, it's closed down. For, it was closed down, and it will open up uh, middle of December for over Christmas because uh, Christmas is a good time as well to be for Chaplin's World to be open because it celebrates as well my uh, when my dad died, you know, because he died on Christmas Day. Very sadly. But uh, what's what's the target uh, target audience for Chaplin's World? Is it um, uh, children uh, wanting to learn, or but it must be so many older people that have so many great uh, memories? Well, you know, at first we thought it was going to be elderly people who remembered Chaplin, but um, the target is the families because. Um, the main house uh, is for people who know about Chaplin and can see how he lived there the past 25 years of his life. And then you have a second part, which is the studios, which is you discover, he, you discover his work. You actually go into his films and see some of the sets and stuff like that. But um, you were born. You were born there, right? You were living, you lived in this yes, house. Yes, I was born there. I was the first one there and the first one and the last one out. How's that? How's that um, when, how's that when you, uh, you entertain guests in, into, there must be so many, so many memories uh, with your family, with your father, with your mother, uh, all your sisters and brothers. Uh, it must be a bit weird now that it's a, uh, uh, I, I don't want to disrespect it, but you could maybe relate it to Graceland's from Elvis. You know that uh, that you grew up there. Well, yeah, it's it's the family house. It, it is a bit strange, you know, but um, well, you know, I'm used to it, and as well, the family wanted this to happen, so it's not too bad. Uh, I'll tell you what I think is very strange. Usually, a museum is about dead people. And uh, when you walk in that museum, I have pictures of myself there. So I feel that very weird. Are all the family pictures still still around the house still now? Yeah, well, there, there's a whole wall there with all the family pictures where you see, uh, you know, pictures of family life. And, uh, it just proves to you that he lived there. And there's loads of... Uh, family videos and stuff. What, what, I have to ask you, Eugene, what's it like when you, uh, you're born and you grow up and you've got your father, who's just your father to you, um, but he's probably the most famous person on the planet. It's certainly uh, through a long part of his career, he was the most famous person in the planet. I mean, could you, could you move around? Could you go shopping? Could you do without being hounded by every single person that wanted an autograph or a picture or something like that? 
Well, I think my, my, my father came to Switzerland because Switzerland is a very quiet country. The Swiss people are very shy, so they always keep a distance. They never dare go up to, you know, they dare go up to him. So he, for him, it was nice because after living in the States and all the troubles he had over there in the States, coming to Switzerland, at last he could have the normal life he wanted. And, you know, he, he used to walk down to town to buy his newspaper and stuff like that. Mr. Chaplin, Mr. Chaplin, just going to buy a newspaper. Fantastic. <laughs> but, I mean, it must have been... It, yeah. Uh, but why... Why I, I thought about it because, obviously, I've read up about, um, about moving to Switzerland. Why Switzerland? Uh, your, your father was born in London. And, and why, why Switzerland? I don't have a... I think it's... A question of just pure luck. He knew Switzerland from years before. He used to go to Samaritz. And um, my mother was pregnant. Uh, and uh, she definitely didn't want to uh, give birth in a hotel because, you know, he, he, he was in exile from, uh, from America. So... Uh, they drove around and someone said, look, there's a really nice house for sale. You should, you should go and see it. And he did, he visited it, and he, he loved it and decided to go there. But it's true, maybe, maybe you know, he would have said maybe the south of France because it had more of the Californian kind of uh, weather there, you know? Was your, was your, father, speak, was your father speaking French? A few swear words, and that's about it. It's the first language uh, I speak French. Not not as well as you. I speak French, but I think that was that might have been the first words I learned. But if yes. if you if, if you don't mind, I mean, um, I would love I would love to talk because I think everyone everyone has a, a, an interest in in your father, and and um, you can you can you can recount the story in its truth. But um, he started, um, uh, from what I've, from from my knowledge, that he had quite a difficult upbringing. It was uh, very poor in London, and um, but both of his parents were uh, were musical performers. Exactly. Um, he was born in the East End of London, and uh, his uh, his father, Charles Senior was a musical entertainer. He used to sing um, romantic songs about romantic little love songs and stuff like that. And he was a big charmer. And his mother used to sing songs as well. And uh, at the age of five, uh, uh, they divorced. Well, the, the father disappeared more or less. Um, because he had loads of girlfriends and hardly drank a lot. So anyhow, they, they, they broke up. So my father was very close to my mother, uh, to his mother. And uh, she had to fight very hard because uh, she worked at night in the music hall. And during the day, she worked as a seamstress or a dressmaker and... Uh, doing little jobs like that, trying to make ends meet to make sure that food would come to the table. 
And the story goes that one night she was on stage and my father was there in the wings playing around. He was about six years old. Uh, he, my, my mother started to sing a song and then she had a kind of a tickle and a cough. And uh, she couldn't get her breath back. So she couldn't continue the song. So my father saw her being in difficulty on stage. So she, he went on stage and finished the song. He was about, he was, I think, seven years old. And people thought that was really cute. So they started to throw money at him. And he noticed more he was bowing, more money was being thrown at him. So what I like to say is maybe it was then he understood that was the kind of job he wanted to do. Amazing. I mean, I, I obviously influenced from his parents. I read uh, uh, on the internet, um, I read one quote that your father said, um, I was hardly aware of a crisis because we lived in a continual crisis. And being a boy, I dismissed our troubles with gracious forgetfulness. Wonderful. Yeah, ex exactly. You know, because afterwards, um, his mother had uh, mental problems, uh, health problems, mental health problems. And uh, she had to be uh, interned into one of those, you know, hospitals, psychiatry hospitals. So he was more or less left alone with his brother. And uh, uh, he was very young now. He was very living, young. He was, he was living, only 14 or something, no? Yes, exactly. He was living on the streets, uh, basically, because he didn't want social services to, to take him away. And uh, it's by seeing street performers at first and then imitating people, you know, walking and doing, imitating people passing by and stuff like that. And then eventually he found a job in a circus where he learned a lot about the art of clowning and uh, being an acrobat and juggling. And at the end, he's, uh, his brother found him a job in the Fred Carnot Company, which was the biggest coal company in England at the time. It had two or three troops. And uh, he, he played uh, different parts, he played in Sherlock Holmes, he played, in, uh, he played the, a drunkard, which he became very famous for. And uh, the Carno troop left to tour America. And in the same troop was uh, Oliver Hardy. I read that. And, and in, in a similar situation... In a similar uh, situation to your father at that time, not famous, no money, I guess. Yes, I guess so. Yeah, they were on the same boat going over to America, and then uh, my father was spotted by Max Sennett very, uh, very quickly. So my my father decided to leave uh, Fred Carno, and I think Stan Laurel continued for a while. Before he turned to, the, to cinema, afterwards. did they did they stay friends for forever? They knew each other, but I, I wouldn't say they were great friends. 
they didn't hate each other. <laughs> I think it's just that they were both both occupied with their own things. Right, but uh, they they both had exponential uh, success. Yes, in in a, in a comedic form. Oh, definitely. And um, it, let's see, Lauren Hardy was later than Chaplin. Uh, they uh, they became famous just before the talkies, and they managed to. Uh, to get into the talkies, you know, what is incredible about Laurel and Hardy is they dubbed their voices in different languages themselves. So when you see a Laurel and Hardy in German, it's them speaking German. When you see Laurel and Hardy in Italian, it's them speaking Italian. Wow, I didn't know that. They learned the text all phonetically. Wow, really, really great. Um, Where, do you think... uh, do you think that it was due to your grandparents or influence or possibly your father's uh, upbringing of poverty and having to survive? Do you think that's, that's what created the tramp, the character of the tramp? Um, there's a certain influence, I guess, but... Um when he got his contract with uh, Max Sennett, for weeks he didn't. He wasn't working. They they didn't call him. And um, suddenly, in kid of the races, uh, Max Sennett said, "Look, go and get yourself a costume, and um, come and uh, we're starting to we'll, we will start to film you." So he rushed and he looked for uh, for a costume. So he took baggy pants because baggy pants always looked funny. He put a jacket on and he, and he said uh, the idea of the mustache was to make him look older because he was very young then. Yeah, I, I, I read that. Uh, I read that it was a little bit haphazard how the the, the costumes and the and um, I think I read that he said he had no idea of what he was going to do. But when he put the costume on, he fell into it and it was just, uh, the character was born. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's like, it's like clowning. Uh, it takes time to, de- to develop the, the character. You know, at first, if you look at his really early films, it's just pure slapstick. And, uh, as it goes on, the, the character has the, the tramp has more personality and he becomes socially conscious. You know, there's all different steps. Yeah, I read, I read about that and I saw some pictures of just completely. And, you know, you think of today with all the social media, there was, there was nothing like this. And, and it's amazing that that news traveled around the world. With with his movies and the, the the success, you know, I read, I I I read to see how how many followers on Instagram different are, different famous artists are are now, and they're in their tens tens of millions. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder how many Charlie Chaplin would have if he if he had that success today, completely uh, astronomical. Yeah, well, you know. It- He's uh, the the little tramp is so universal. Um, 
the art of pantomime is so great because you don't need any language. And it's just pure emotion. So it gets to people. And, you know, uh, yeah, I know my dad was famous. You're asking me, uh, did I know my, I had a famous dad when I was a kid? At first, not. And then, of course, at school, people saying, oh, you're Charlie Chaplin's son. So you're kind of aware of it. But I'm really taking conscience of it. It's now because 130 odd years after him being born, I'm here on internet talking about him. And that's completely extraordinary. And then, and then, I mean, it was very, it was very quick that um, that Charlie Charlie Chaplin started actually uh, directing and producing his own movies. Well, yes, he. I think he just understood that doing doing only slapstick wasn't enough. You, you had to take it a step forward. So um, he started to uh, to direct, and then started to write his own stories. I, I read I read and, somewhere uh, he's, I read that he's made eighty movies, but then he had a contract that he had to do a, a, a short movie. He had he had to do a um, a different movie every week, and I just wonder I wonder how much pressure because. You know, here at Europa Park, I'm uh, involved in, in, in with the shows and we have deadlines and everything. And I can't imagine, with your father's success and expectation, how, how he dealt with the pressure of the deadline of a new show, which, you, you know, in, in show business and maybe in singing and in different entertainment, you're, you're as good as your last movie or you're maybe as good as your next one or your next performance. And I just wonder how, how, what was his character like to deal with this significant pressure? Because obviously there were a lot of money men, a lot of producers uh, that were behind him, pushing him. And uh, how, how could he have dealt with that creative process? Well, you know, he understood very quickly that you're... Never, you're never better served than by your, uh, by your, your own, by your own person than than yourself. And um, the minute he made enough money, which was very quickly, uh, when he did these films with Max Sinnott, he decided to open up his own studios, and he built his own studios. And then he had his own team. He had his own team of actors. And that's how he managed to get the quality out because he always worked with the same troupe. Yeah, it's it's great when you have this team around you and you trust them, and they know in which way you work. It's the same on a on a much uh, significantly smaller level. It's the same as as here in Europa Park that we uh, we're putting our shows together. That that when we rely on our sort of family team who do their part and and everyone trusts each other and. Much the same, but I, but the international pressure for your father must have been significant. Well, for him, you know, he, he used to work, he, he would have a storyline. He, he would know this, what story he would want to tell. But all the gags were in, invented with his troupe by rehearsing and trying things out. That's why in some of these films, you see there's so many takes. 
because he, he tries out one thing and then he realizes that it's not getting there or it's not funny. So he changes the scenery and tries something else. I guess it wasn't, I guess it wasn't easy working for your father because uh, he was uh, internationally known as uh, uh, quite a perfectionist now. Well, he was a perfectionist. When you worked with my father, if you were an actor, you had no improvisation, no impro uh, to do. He would tell you exactly what it, you know, what you had to do. He knew every part, every woman's part, and he would explain. So, of course, what what I say is, he was a tyrant. Well, let's say. If the end product is good, he's a genius. If the end product is bad, he's a tyrant. But it's on him. But it's on him. But uh, it's, yeah. Yeah, but when you say about the money, I read somewhere that, um, which is still, uh, which is still significant today, that he was earning um, $670,000 a year uh, when he was, 20, 24 years old. That's right, yeah. Amazing. I mean, how did he, how did he deal? Well have... How did he keep his feet on the ground, having that, that immense wealth, but the pressure to keep, uh, keep creating? He never, ever forgot where he came from. So, uh, you know, he, he would even tell us uh, I remember the number of times he would say, look, you're so lucky to go to school. And I'd look at him and say, yeah, sure. And he says, yes, you're so lucky. And I would have loved to go to school when I was your age. Now I know what he means. Well, I mean, it's true. Uh, Rags to Riches story, no? which uh, in many of his movies, he per portrayed this very poor character, just uh, amazing uh, creative mind. But, but by writing, writing the music, writing the story, producing it, acting it, and basically acting for everybody else. Now, it's a tremendous, tremendous achievement. Well, he knew exactly in his head what he wanted, you know, and it was the only way he could do it. But um, what, what I like to say as well about the little tramp, the success of the, of the, of the little tramp, and... Uh, I say, basically, the little tramp is you, it's me. Everyone has a little bit of the little tramp in them. So when you see a Chaplin film, you recognize yourself in it. Hmm. But then I also, um, he, 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 with uh, some other not notable uh, stars, Douglas Fairbanks, and he started the United Artists, which is still uh, going today. Where I think we've just passed the 100-year yes, well, anniversary of the company now. Exactly. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a natural continuation of his, of his theory. He wrote, he composed his music, he had his own studios, and uh, he didn't want to be under the thumb of distributors who would say, you know, your film is too long or not long enough or whatever critic they had to do. So uh, he founded... Uh, uh, United Artists with Douglas Fairbanks and Fairbanks' wife and uh, W.D. Griffith. But uh, great, it must have been, 
it must have been difficult to do in those days. I mean, it's difficult to do now, but uh, in those days, uh, it must have been quite a challenge to do because a lot of people didn't want him, could not want if wanted him to have done that, right? Because they um, they lose their they lose their star, they lose their big money. It's true. No, it's it's true. The, um, most people were signed up under a company. And uh, like Laurel and Hardy, and they never, they never got paid. And uh, look at Mr. Keaton; he uh, he lost all these films and everything. You know, he, he didn't know anything. So my father knew how important it was. He knew how important it was when he composed music to have it protected. Yeah, fantastic. I think actually, we. Um I did an ice show in uh, London last year in Hyde Park. And um, I wanted to use this piece of music that I'd used. And, uh, and we, we made a, a, a comedic uh, video. And uh, I wanted to use Smile. And uh, I, think, I think we might have paid you some money for that on the rights. I'm sure. <laughs> no, but fantastic. Fantastic. I was so happy to have done it, really, uh, because the, the music is so emotional. It told the story that I wanted to tell. It can be, it, it can be interpreted in different uh, ways. And uh, it was, uh, uh, I mean, some of the music your father wrote was uh, uh, very, very clever and, and totally emotional. Well, you know, he, he was the first person who understood the importance of music with film. You know, uh, before you had a pianist who would just kind of improvise. And he, he hated it because he thought it took the comedy away or the, the emotions away, distracted the, the emotions away. So, you know, he, he started to write music and com composers at first. Uh, when they looked at the at Chaplin's music, they're saying, you know, this is ridiculous because uh, it's not logical. You know, it goes from one rhythm to another. Uh, you know, it's not professional. But once you see the music picture, he was composing his music to, uh, to the picture he was looking at. Yeah, beautiful. So, so it, it certainly made sense. It's an obvious thing now, but at the time it wasn't. Was he? Uh, could he play? Uh, what with what instruments could he play? Like he couldn't read music, but he could play piano. Uh, he played the violin and accordion. Right. So he could he could give the he worked with the writers. Well, he. I, I remember him composing for his uh, early films because all the music of his early films were composed later. And uh, my mother was at the projector and we had the, the film in 16 millimeter because there was no video at the time. And uh, my mother would switch on the film, like, let's say, let's take the circus. Uh, she put on this, uh, she would start the film the circus, and he'd start playing. Okay, he had a kind of idea what he was wanting, but he wasn't sure. Then you'd tell my mother, stop, rewind back, so he had to rewind the film back. 
and get that scene again. And he would start rewriting. And eventually, once he got the melody right, he'd have a, he would have an arranger next to him. The arranger was called Eric James. And Eric James would mark down the notes. Mm. And then during the whole way, um, your father got married a few times. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, a lot of people have a lot of comments about that, but I think what you have to remember is that all the people in the show business in Hollywood at the time were very young. So you obviously had a lot of girlfriends. Well, and he's the most successful uh, artist in all the studios. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I think everywhere you go, you, it's the same. Um, no, he got, he got married four times. Um, the first times, well, I guess the three first marriages didn't work because there were actresses. And uh, it's me guessing, because huh? he never said anything to me, but I'm guessing there are actresses. And when you're doing great films and all, the actresses want to be in your film. And suddenly he would look at someone else saying, no, this other person will be better for it. And I, I don't think that would go down very well. Right. So... Um, he didn't really he talk to, He didn't really talk to you about those... Uh, uh, his, his previous wives? No, not at all. You know, for him, the past was the past, and he never talked about the past. I, um, I, from, from what I read, that your mother, with your father marrying, it seems like uh, one of the greatest love stories ever, that he, he obviously met the, 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 the perfect soulmate, true uh, partner for him, no? Yes, well, he met my mother by pure chance. Uh, she's the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, you know, the playwright. And uh, Nobel Prize winner. She, Nobel Prize winner, yep. And um, she was beautiful. She was absolutely beautiful. And uh, it, it just clicked. And uh, she didn't want... Well, before meeting him, she wanted to act. Then she gave up acting because she, she was happy with my father. And, you know, she was, uh, she, she was a real sunshine. Uh, she was full of warmth. Uh, she was very pretty and, most of all, very intelligent. I also read um, uh, about your, your father um, saying, as I live with Una, the depth and beauty of her character are a continual revelation to me. It just sounds much deeper than uh, he was very emotional about how your mother always amazed him. Yeah, well, you know, the story I tell is my dad's, my dad's life is in three parts. The first part is uh, it, it, it's his... Him being a young boy trying to survive, uh, really just surviving. Then the second part is America, and it's uh, focusing on his career, working very hard, and 
obviously getting the, the success. And the third part is meeting my mother. And what is extraordinary is a man who was so focused, who knew what he wanted exactly and uh, was so difficult and hard on himself, when he met my mother, suddenly he changed completely and he couldn't do anything without her. So when he wrote his autobiography, she read it and she was giving uh, her advice what to change or, you know, what great he just gave her opinion about things. Great partnership. She, she, yes, she should give her, her opinion about uh, the music he wrote. I'm wondering why... Uh, she helped him... I'm, I'm sorry, I, I wonder... Um, uh, there's there's quite a lot of controversy about uh, about your father about the FBI seem to have they seem to uh, you know uh, accusing him of being a communist sympathizer and it seemed like the FBI uh, wanted to bring him down no it, it, it's uh, by extraditing or not extraditing him they've just refused his visa is that right well. You know, what happened is, by the way, it's the 80 years of the great dictator. The reason I'm saying that is when my father wanted to do in 1938 the, uh, the great dictator, he got uh, death uh, menaces and the American government really lay into him trying to stop him from making such a film. And he financed it himself and made it. Uh, I'm saying that. That's why that was part of the problem. The other problem was he. Uh, there was a young girl. Uh, I'm trying to remember her name, but it'll come back to, to me. Who went to the papers and said she was pregnant and the, fa the, the father of her child was my father. So all the Catholic organizations and the ultra-right start to say, oh, that chaplain had reputation and, and everything like that. And he did a paternity test, which was proved that the child wasn't his. But he was still condemned to pay uh, a pension to that child that was 18. I didn't understand that. Do you, have you ever had an understanding of that? Why? Uh, I was told that paternity tests weren't uh, weren't uh, accepted in the court at the time. So and so he he paid for the child until eighteen. Yeah, and then uh, the third thing was uh, he always defended the he he hated injustice, and during the McCarthy period. Uh, you know, if you were, uh, if people thought you were, a, you were a communist, you lose your job, you get sacked from wherever, and you couldn't work again, and people would be left starving with their families just because they were communists or communist sympathizers, I should say. So, um, my my father, out of provocation as well, said, you know. Uh, I'm interested in new ideas, 
So yes, I'm interested in communism. And he said, uh, we shouldn't forget that the Russians held the, the, had, uh, held the front line and lost a lot of people. And if we are in a free world now, it's partly thanks to them as well. Right. And um, he said, you know, if you want me to, to come and explain myself in front of the anti-communist commission, uh, please, I'll, I'll come and explain myself. But they never did. They never did invite him. So and another factor as well is um, Hoover, uh, the head of the FBI, knew how powerful Hollywood was in propaganda. And he gave out um, instructions to the major studios in Hollywood what kind of films... Should, should be there and how, how good, you know, what they should talk about and use them as propaganda films. And my father refused to do that. He says, I'll do the films I want to do and no one's going to tell me. So the mixture of all that uh, is when he went, he left America to go to Europe to promote Limelight. He received a telegram saying that uh, if you wanted to go back into the country, you would have to reapply for uh, uh, a visa and we'll see if it will be considerate or not. So he said, after all what I've done for America, we're going to treat me like that. I'm not going back. Um, so He must have, yes, been, he must have felt uh, quite betrayed, no? Oh, totally betrayed. Totally betrayed, and uh, he was very, very hurt about it. And uh, he didn't talk about it much, but uh, you know, in Switzerland, he would go down every day to buy the Herald Tribune just to keep in touch what was happening in America. But and then he, he didn't. It's only when he went back for the seventies for, for the Oscar that, but he didn't want to go back. But my mother pushed him. And he did go, and uh, I think it was the best thing which happened to him because uh, it put his heart in, uh, heart at peace. Very emotional. I saw the video of your uh, father walking onto stage, twenty minutes standing ovation. Very emotional, really, because it was, it was. I don't want to say it was like an apology, but it was like an acceptance of you're a great creator. You are one of the most influential. Uh, people in our business. It, somehow it came over to me as uh, everyone was, was just saying, we love you for, for, your, for your years of uh, creative work. Yeah, well, it was re recognition from the film industry, you know, one of the, the biggest film industry in the world, which was Hollywood. And uh, he, he was totally shocked by it. Yeah, it was very emotional. Way, uh, very, he was very touched by it. And your mother, your mother was there uh, with him, right? Yeah, she wasn't even supposed to be there. And my father didn't want to go on stage, you know. He says, I'm not going, son of the riches, and whatever. <laughs> and uh, my mother convinced him, said, look, go on stage and I'll come after. How did he, uh, because there's, uh, 
did did he talk like that where you say, oh yeah, son of a bitch? Would he would he talk with lots of passion and use these words? Because in the artistic world, I, I have to say, whether it's right or wrong, it's been it still is used that people express uh, emotion. I am I am actually a lover of that. I like I like when I've had artists or something um, sort of losing it. Sometimes I never really scold them because I actually embrace them showing their character because I think we learn more about the person they feel eventually more comfortable about being a great artist what what makes them a great artist is their sort of extrovert character and some people keep it reserved but was your father very extrovert when he was talking with you or was he reserved uh, uh, as a father um he wasn't an extrovert, but uh, if he saw something he didn't like, he, he, for sure he would let us know. <laughs> yeah, he was quite a uh, he was quite a strict father. No, uh, uh, very very strict on um, getting you all a, a great education and preparing yourself for the life. No, well, he was strict on discipline, and uh, he, he had his morals. You know. He, we weren't allowed to play with water guns inside the grounds. We weren't, uh, we had full of things like that. He never had a German car. He always bought Italian cars or English cars, stuff like that. It's that because of the, the last world war. Um, he was full of principles, but he knew that if a child is well-educated, just by, by his manners, by saying please and thank you, uh, that you'll have a better chance in the world because people will like him. Uh, absolutely. And now, and now you can go to many countries in the world and there's a statue of your father, even though that he's British or he's English. Uh, he's worked in America, but uh, there's, uh, there's so many statues of your father around the world. They all claim uh, a part of uh, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, well, every, everywhere they, 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 they do now. Uh, I would say most of the world will think that he's American because obviously he made his fortune there in America. Yeah. But he, he stayed very British. You know, even his studios had a kind of countryside cottage look. Yeah. Do you spend, English countryside. Do you spend much time in England yourself? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I have my son there and stuff. I go quite a bit. But I, I noticed that uh, that even even now, after all uh, the history of movies, that your father, some of your father's movies are still regarded as a masterpiece, the best of all time. Well, you know, I I believe that. Um, in every media, before it was books, then it was theatres, you had always people like Shakespeare and Moliere and all who knew how to bring out the eternal problems which are never solved. And Chaplin did that uh, in his films. And he, you know, the, the impossible love, uh, the difference between rich and poor and... Uh, it just, it's that, and it hasn't changed. You look at modern times, uh, the film Modern Times, you know, you're talking about uh, 
machine over uh, over man. Well, you know, we're we're getting there now. Who um who uh, um because uh, I've had some experience with working with uh, intellectual properties uh, of doing shows, and I have to work with the IP holder. Um, who controls the Charlie Chaplin rights brand now? Uh, we do. We do. Uh, and, and who, who hey, all of you? Basically, in- we have an office. In, we have an office in Paris. What we did is uh, we leased the films out to a distributor because this distributing the films is a, a work of its own. So uh, MK2 uh, does that for us. But if not, all the, the copywriting of music, the, the copywriting we have, the, the copywriting of the image, uh, we, lo- we look after ourselves. And uh, how many, is it all you and your brothers and sisters? Or do you, is it into the children? And how many people are on oh, the board of that then? We're, there's eight of us. And uh, we have an office which has guidelines, so we don't interfere all the time. But if there's a major demand, then uh, we get a, an email and we vote. I just we wondered, has, has, anyone, um, has anyone approached you to do a, a VR or an AR uh, Charlie Chaplin uh, content uh, movie or uh, presentation? Uh, what do you mean by the RNA or sorry? <laughs> um, because because here at, here at Europa Park, um, that we've just opened a, a Yule Bee concept, which is a VR concept. People will come in, they'll put the oh, headset, okay. put the headset uh, on. They've got uh, uh, sensors on their hands and their feet, and they they turn into an animated character, and they have to do a challenge, and and they go through. Um, a fantastic experience, shared experience with different people. And uh, I just wondered, has anyone ever approached you or with the augmented reality, whether whether someone said, hey, we can put Charlie back on stage for you? Well, yes, we, we were approached uh, once or twice. But um, we, uh, we did, the majority of us thought it wasn't a good idea. I think um, we have to see when that technology gets really good. Do you have Do you have see. fights amongst your family about that? Because somebody will come up with an idea. It's such a recognizable uh, uh, theme. Um, and but we do well. I think we we all mean well, but you know uh, we all have our own vision of our parents. So, uh, as an example, if uh, cigarette make says, can we use Charlie Chaplin to promote cigarettes, uh, a make of cigarettes? Um, there'll be some of us will say no, because uh, he was against, he always said he didn't want to promote cigarettes or alcohol. But then uh, some of us will say, yes, but I remember in the early days he was smoking. So, you know, and you have the, the debate, and the majority wins. <laughs> and uh, the majority wins, yeah. 
So there's eight of you. So five, five to three, and it's a go. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I also heard about uh, um, that a few months, three months after your father died, uh, somebody uh, stole his coffin. That's right, yeah. Not, not, not long after his death, the, the police phoned up and said, oh, someone dug up the grave and stole the, the coffin. Unbelievable. It was during the period in Italy, uh, you know, you had Aldo Moro, who was kidnapped. Mm. And she, he was the, the bosses of the bosses in Italy. He was kidnapped and killed. So uh, it was during the Red Brigade, Red Brigade times as well. So you didn't know who we were dealing with. And... Uh, my, my mother's always said, look, we're not going to pay any ransom for a dead body. It's ridiculous. Uh, it went on. The people came. First, we had to identify the people because we got... It's what I thought was shocking is there's a lot of people phoning saying, oh, we want so much and we'll give the body back. When you say, prove us that you have the body, right. they didn't. You know, there are people trying to cash on it. Right. But eventually, uh, we got uh, photos of it and, uh, just before they, they buried it elsewhere. Was that a traumatic affair? And, it must have been a traumatic uh, affair. six months. Yeah, well, especially for my mother, because some people were threatening the kids. They'd say, you know, your kids go to school, we're going to get them there and stuff. So for a while, the, the police had secret police guarding the schools and making sure everything was okay. So that, that wasn't nice. But uh, when you see the end of it, it was two, just two poor guys basically trying to make a buck and were inspired by Maria Callis because someone stole the, the body of Maria Callis at the time. And that's how they got the idea. So they went to jail, these two guys? So they ended up in jail, yep. A one, no, because he had less to do, but the, the brains behind it, yeah. Huh. But when, you're, um, when, when your father was back in uh, Switzerland, uh, he was still creating, still working. And uh, I just wondered, with, with you running around as a child, you're uh, growing older, how, um, what, what was he like? When you're a child and he had, he wanted to create something with was, you know, there's, there's so many different reactions from creators. Some, you know, they look at a blank piece of paper, you don't know what to put on it and they get moody and, uh, shut me in a room or something. How, how was your father creating while you were a child growing up? Well, he was very disciplined and he had his times, he had his times, uh, to work and then times and then gave him free times as well. But basically his routine was uh, around eight o'clock he'd have his breakfast with my mom. And by nine o'clock he would lock himself in the library. Well not lock himself, all doors closed in the library. And he would do whatever he was doing then. And then at quarter to twelve he would come out, have his lunch 
around one o'clock, go back, continue what he was doing. Five. Mm. And that's it. And, and, and the kids don't go in the room while your dad's working. Well, basically we were at school at the time. So it was during school time. So the house was pretty quiet. And during holidays, then we had to make sure not to make too much noise in the house. Right. Well, it's beautiful, beautiful home now. Uh, uh, the, the gardens are uh, fantastic. No, it's a great place. It's a great family place. You need a big family for that. Place. I'm definitely coming to visit that place as soon as as soon as the uh, COVID situation uh, becomes easier. I'm definitely coming to visit. It's fa- it looks it looks absolutely wonderful what you've created. Well, you know, uh, the biggest compliment I got was uh, I was in uh, Lausanne, the local town here, and someone recognized me and said, "Oh, Mr. Chaplin, I want you to meet." Um, the biggest fan, Chaplin fan you'll ever meet uh, in your life. I said, okay. And they showed me this little boy who was about six years old. So I said, you really like him? And the kid said, yeah. And I said, well, then uh, once you should go to Chaplin's world and see the, see the place. And he says, I became a fan because I wanted Chaplin's world. Yeah. So, you know, that's... Exactly what we wanted. Yeah, great. So you get a lot of school visits and stuff like that now? Yeah, well, it's mainly families, you know. It's like the circus, you know. Uh, I say circus is family entertainment, the traditional circus, anyhow. And uh, the kids love the animals, the kids love the the clowns. Whatever the, the the older people more like the acrobats contortion or you know whatever. Yeah, I, I uh, it's a good family. I heard that you had a lot of the circus, uh, a lot of the Swiss circuses, knock and and uh, knee. They would come around and visit your father and and uh, uh, bring artists yeah, around. Well, every year, knee came to town, and. Uh, we we would go out. It was always a big happening. We all. The whole family would go out, and the staff of the house was invited, and we would go and see the Saturday evening show there. And then after the show, he invited all the artists back at the house for a drink. Very cool. Great for you. Great. How old were you? How old were you in those days? Look, uh, as young as I remember. You know, I, I was a very, I was a very shy boy, and to me, going to the circus, I was always amazed seeing all the different acts, and actually meeting the people afterwards, and realizing that they're not superhumans; they're really just down-to-earth people. Was a great lesson. But you had a lot of you had a lot of but a lot of famous, very famous people at your house visiting, no? Oh sure, yeah. Well, you know, our next door neighbor was James Mason. Uh, We had Noel Coward who lived not too far. Uh, In Montpellier, you had uh, Charles Lindbergh. There there is quite a lot of people who lived around. You've. You've lived an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, upbringing uh, with these 
mega famous people just coming around for a coffee or a cup of tea rather yeah you know some people there was a there's a famous swiss french actor called michel simon uh playing the film vieille homme et l'enfant different films the doorbell rang and he was there and he says i'm here to see charlot it says, I'm not, a, I'm not invited, but I'm just passing by to say hello. And my father came down and greeted him. He stayed at the house, you know, he stayed an hour at the house and left again. We had surprises like that. Great. Really. What, one thing, you're going... Oleg Popov yeah. told me that he was in uh, Venice with his show. And he read in the paper that my father was in Venice too, whatever hotel it was. So he went to that hotel and he said, I want to see, uh, I want to see if, if Mr. Chaplin could see me. And the concierge of the hotel said, I doubt it. And he insisted a bit. So the concierge phoned up and my father said, uh, you know, who is it? And he said, it's Oleg Popov, he's a Russian clown. So my father said, oh, if he's a clown, I'll come down. And that's how they met. Wow, wonderful. Sadly, Oleg. Uh, sadly, uh, Oleg Popov's no longer with us. He he worked uh, with us, uh, I think, uh, oh, about uh, seven or eight years ago. He worked with us. Lovely, fantastic. Yeah, well, I, I was very uh, honoured to be in the audience when he came back to Russia in Sochi. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful man. Also, a great, uh, great. Great accomplishments throughout the world. Yeah, no, he's sweet. You know, I, I met him years back. I, I invited him to a comedy film festival in Switzerland. And it was still um, during the communist days. And I asked, I said, I'll ask Popov if he wants to be part of the jury. And he accepted. And I went to pick him up in Zurich. And he was delayed and, uh, because they couldn't find his luggage. And he came out and he said to me, well, I had a translator with me because I don't speak German. I'm speaking in German. He said, um, you know, uh, my, my suitcases haven't arrived. They've kept my suitcases. But it doesn't matter because they don't have my soul. <laughs> but is, is this... Was was this um, with all the all the people coming round and your father's connections? Is this is what brought you into uh, supporting supporting circus so significantly as you've been doing? Well, yes. Well, you know, I'm from the the theater. I'm a sta- my my real job is I'm a stage manager, and um, I stage managed for a while. Then I went off. To, becoming a recording uh, engineer uh, and stuff like that. And then uh, there was a festival, a circus festival in Lausanne here in Switzerland where every uh, circus in Switzerland was there. And I got a phone call and someone said, do you want to be part of the jury? And said, we're missing one person. So I don't know. They must have looked up in the phone book and said, oh, let's ask him. 
So I, I went there, and uh, next to me was this lady in a big fur coat, dark glasses, and smoking cigarette. And it looked like a real tough cookie, you know. And I thought, oh, dear. How am I going to get along with her? And it was Mrs. Nock. Mm-hmm. And I realized she had great sense of humor, and we became friends. And not long after that, she phoned me and she said, look, uh, our artistic director uh, uh, has left our, our circus. Do you know of anyone? And I said, yeah, sure, me. She said, do you really want to? I said, yeah. So that's how it all began. How many years did you uh, direct with Nog? Uh, eight years. You directed the show and then you sent it on its uh, tour or did you tour with it? I toured with them, then I would do the promotion. Mm. Tremendous. But Circus Knock was very successful in those days, no? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was good. You know, it was the second biggest circus in Switzerland. It was certainly the oldest circus in Switzerland. But... Um, I liked it because it had very nice family values, you know, and uh, it was it was very good. And their shows were good. Yeah, very very sad. It's no longer uh, no longer touring. I know, I know. Yeah, uh, circus is not. It's in a difficult situation. But you you also did a um, uh, a festival in Canada now. Yeah, well, what what happened is a town in Canada did a, a, a small circus festival there and asked me if I wanted to go over and see it. I said, okay. And um, it was held in a skating rink. Ah, my world. And and it was uh, with three, three rings, you know. And uh, at the end of the, the festival, I just said to them, look, if you want um, to, to comment on what, what is good and what is bad, to have a little bit of experience, I can help you. And uh, they said, okay, they were open to it. So the next year I got more involved with it. And eventually we got a tent and it, it worked really well until it's always the same problem, you know. That you're famous abroad. The, f- the festival did really well abroad. But uh, unfortunately, the local authorities didn't think so. So they stopped financing it. I thought for the first few years, it was very, it was the Eugene Chaplin tent, no? That's right, yeah. It was very successful in the beginning, I read. Yeah, no, we had we, we had the best, uh, really very nice shows. It was very big. Can you imagine you had an orchestra of 22, a 22-piece orchestra? You blew the budget on that. No, not at all. Totally free. It was a local band. Oh, great. Great. But is this what... Um... The idea was, yeah, the idea was as well to have good artists, but it's to get the young people involved as well. But there's quite a lot. Uh, your sister, your sister has her own circus in France, no? My sister has a show called the Cirque Invisible. My sister, I think, was the first one 
with her husband to do taking circus things and put them on stage in a, in, in a context. I watched a couple of videos uh, of something like that, and I thought, when I was watching it, I thought it was, it was taking the talent, recreating it on a stage, and, and I thought a little bit, without the budget of Cirque du Soleil, it was along those lines, really. I thought that they're trying to recreate, because this is what Cirque have done. Cirque, or Cirque du Soleil took the talents and then they recreated it basically on a stage. I know they've toured a lot in uh, tents, obviously, but they, they're, they're, they're fixed buildings in, in America. Okay, it's exponential budget. But I, I thought something a little bit like that your sister's show with, with her husband that had that same concept, you no, know, taking the talents and recreating a show incorporating their talent. Yeah, so they just, basically it's the two of them, you know. Uh, he does magic. He's, he's a total eccentric magician. And uh, my sister does typro, does trapeze, and a lot of uh, transformation. And they do a whole show like that. It, it, it's like a dream, you you come in, you have a certain kind of music, you sit down and but it's like it's like it's like circus but more intimate. And you, you don't get involved in, in in that show. You don't offer your so she calls me up sometimes and says, Look, we're looking for such and such a thing, do you know where we can get it? If I have any ideas, I help her out in that way. <laughs> what what but uh they, where do you think we are in circus right now? I mean, um, we spoke about Nock, uh, very famous French circus pinder, uh, Skylight, yeah. Cirque du Soleil, uh, all having terrible problems. Cirque, certainly, we, we heard that, um, that they're bankrupt. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe it's gone into chap chapter 11, the protection of bankruptcy. But uh, where where do you think we are with circus? What what hopes do you have? Look, I don't think it's the end of it. Um, I think it will always exist. Um, definitely, I think it will come back. Of course, it, it's difficult now because all the old ones have, or a lot of the circuses have. Uh, have terrible financial difficulties because then there's no way they can make money because uh, the, the, the audiences are, are not allowed. But once the audiences will be allowed again, I think people will come back. I, I, I like to think in order, under what form, you know, it will be different forms. It will have to reinvent itself. Absolutely. It has to recreate itself. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, you have like the, the problems with the animals now and stuff like that. But I think, you know, the fact of going under the tent, uh, having sawdust and having uh, a band playing and have good artists and all that, that will always work. You can't get that anywhere else. No, it's... it's it... Fantastic. Like you say, the sawdust, I was going to say the smell of the animals and the elephants and everything was uh, 
was beautiful. Of course. Are you? Uh, <laughs> were, did you did you support or not support animals in circus? Oh, I supported it completely. I think the. I personally, I think the problem of the animals in circus is, is taking the wrong way around. Uh, I understand what the people are trying to say, but I think they should fight more. I, mean, I think uh, countries like India have to do more to extend spaces for their elephants and for their tigers. I think uh, in Africa too, you know, it's not the, the few animals which are in circuses now which will change the problem. But um, you are... I mean, you're, uh, you, you have quite an influence on the circus world. You're, uh, in, a normal, in a normal year, uh, how many circuses or a lot of circus festivals? I, well, that's how we first met. And we were both on the jury in uh, the, the, Moscow, exactly, yeah. the Moscow circus. Had uh, way too many drinks uh, in the hotel after. I think we stayed up till four, four or something. Is a killer. <laughs> yeah, but um, but you're you're you have a lot of influence. But um, where uh, where do you think the problems are? Uh, because I don't honestly, I don't have any experience with circuses in India or uh, uh, where where do you think we're where we where we can help it. Um, but basically by going to it, you know, there's, there's no, I think the, the people have to, to come, but no, we, we're living a world where there's a world of entertainment where there's so much, there's films, there's television, there's just so much happening. Streaming. Theater, music Streaming. festivals. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, it's like, when television came out, they were saying, oh, that's the end of cinemas. Well, it's not true. The TV lived alongside films. I think people are saying, now this is the end of circus. But I think um, what, what a circus person said to me, and I think it's so true, you know, we're talking about traditional circus and modern circus. And I think there's no traditional circus. I think... The circuits has to be original, and, I, and that's part of the artist's problem. How do you feel when you're uh, on the jury and uh, and uh, well, uh, an artist comes out dressed as Charlie Chaplin? How do you feel about that? You must see, you must have many occasions where you see an artist take the hat, take the baggy pants, take the cane and uh, use some of your uh, father's music. How, how do you, because it's, you know, it's like, that's my dad. You know, uh, uh, how do you feel uh, pride or do you think mm, it's not doing my father's name uh, legacy ju justice? How? Like it, it's doing my father, it does justice to my, to my father, of course, but um, I'll never compare him to my father. No, I always say there's only one chaplain. Yeah. That's for sure. One little tramp. <clears throat> but I, I don't mind if a circuit artist uses a little tramp and adds something to it. It's great. You have to come back in and uh, you have to come. When, when the COVID restrictions, I, I would very much appreciate that you come 
to uh, see all of our shows here. What I like about the theme parks is their shows. And I think it's nice having different areas with different shows. And, you know, they last, I like the format of 20, 30 minutes. And that's it. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I, I like it like that. I've, I've seen some, I've met with some owners or uh, directors of um, different amusement parks and, and their philosophy is not uh, the shows and entertainment, but the big roller coasters. We are super lucky here that the Mac family uh, love it. And I know it's freely given, so there's a, a, a significant cost involved. But it's uh, some, I always remember this one uh, CEO of this park, which I won't say, and he said, I don't see the fi- financial reimbursement. I don't see further shows. And I said, well, it's in the satisfaction of our guest. That, uh, that's important. That's why the people, we have many guests that only come to see the shows. That, uh, of course, the core business is, well, it's the theming, it's the gardening, it's the, it's the family, it's the experience you have. But certainly, uh, we have a lot of followers just following our artists, following our shows. Every year we're changing, updating. And, uh, it, well, I, I'm, I'm lucky for, for that to be working here. You know, the, the, I think the roller coaster rides and all that is fine when you're young, but if I go on them, my stomach will turn upside down. So I prefer the shows anyhow. Yeah, we've got some, we've got so some rides that, that you cater for both. We've got some <laughs> rides that you'll appreciate the story that uh, you'll, mm. you'll, you will love, but, but it'll be my pleasure to invite you next time. But um, I, I would like to say, uh, uh, I met with Roland several times. And I must say, he's done a lot for the circus. You can see he has that love for the circus. Personally, and I, I really appreciate it. I think that... I appreciate uh, that. I, 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 my personal opinion is that uh, Roland Mack would have succeeded whatever uh, avenue he chose. But uh, I think one of, the, one of his decisions would have been, could have been circus. He's a very firm advocate of circus, uh, friends with a lot of, uh, a lot of circuit, different circuses in both in Germany, in Switzerland, in France, and has, uh, uh, well, I think he was recognized. He was on the jury of the Monte Carlo uh, Circus Festival. And I think that was in somehow recognition of his commitment to circus. Obviously the Mac rides that we have, we used to make the wagons for circus. So I think Roland has a, mm. um, very, uh, very fond memories of his experience with circus people. And the circus people are very grateful to him because most of the artists uh, have been uh, in Europa Park, you know, Hush Mahush and all that. You know, every year, the, the last show, or last week, of the tour of the Knox was in Museum. And uh, there was a big gala for, um, I forget his name, you know, the, the circus priest guy. I his Father name. Heller. Father Heller. Yeah, for fa- Father, for Father Heller. And every year it was held in under the tent, the mock tent. And they used the mock show and they mixed it with the Europa Park. Uh, artists as well. 
And it was absolutely marvelous. Yeah, he was a super, uh, super uh, support to all the circuses. Big support to Europe apart. Very, very close with uh, Roland Mack. And uh, so that's right, yeah. we were lucky that um, he was always with us. And many, every time I go to a circus festival or something, somehow Farah Heller comes walking around the tribune and just, he's there. Big support, loves it. And uh, yeah, you feel really good when he's there. He just he's and he's a he's a showman himself, you know. Of course, he's he uh, is. absolutely gets his uh, uh, plays all the music, or I think he always plays when the Saints go marching in. I, no, is it? Yeah, well, I went. Uh, I, I won't give the name, but I, one of the circuses bosses died a few years ago. Uh, he, he was the, the priest doing the, the funeral. And uh, it was going on about, you know, um, he had this life, he had that life, and whatever. And suddenly he picks up his clarinet and he starts playing piece of music. That's, that's. And after he puts his clarinet down, he says, oh, let's continue. Jesus said. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Uh, I mean, great, great showman. Uh, not your traditional Farah, uh, uh, but um, but embraces everybody and, and embraces this sort of artistic world, which is sort of sometimes, in some way, controversial because we can we embrace people's creative controversies on stage even, and uh, he supports it all. So it's really really pleasure to know him and uh, amazing. It was amazing with all the contacts and all. You know, I had a. I have a friend who, who is an artist, he's French, and uh, I made him play at Knox on the last show. Because um, the idea behind it, I said, maybe I can please the Knox and can get a contract for the next season. And Father Heller was there. And he, Father Heller loved them so much that he got so many gigs after that. It was amazing. Yeah. No, we're we're very lucky to be um, in a great industry where we we get to meet some wonderful people with big hearts, big. Uh, I mean, that's the creative mind. Now that that we are maybe a little bit over the top sometimes. Maybe we we have uh, we show great emotions, but uh, I think we're all fortunate to be in such a, a great industry. Yeah, I, well, I, I personally think uh, that people want to be entertained. They don't want to think. They want to forget about everyday problems. They just want to have a nice evening. And uh, these shows, you know, do that. Yeah, no, brilliant. Eugene, um, honestly, it's been the greatest pleasure for me to listen to you. You've got such a, a yourself, I've got such an interesting life. Uh, I think maybe we've covered five, two percent of it, maybe. And uh, we've, we've covered, uh, spoken about your father, which is truly one of the all-time greats and will be remembered forever. And uh, I want to really, truly, sincerely thank you for, for coming on this show, sharing your insights, sharing your committed support to the industry. And uh, next time I... I I would be very happy to invite you to Europa Park and, and uh, we can have a nice dinner and, and enjoy the experience of the whole resort. 
I'd love to look. The moment it's open, I'm over. Yeah, no cool. Problem. And with the kids, <laughs> uh, everyone in the family yeah, can yeah, enjoy it. So cool. Oh, they wouldn't let me go on my own. No, but I, I thank you. Uh, <laughs> I thank you very much for being on the Going Banana Show, and it's been truly uh, my honour to uh, listen to you and talk with you. Look, Ian, you did a great job. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. 